Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. Our special guest today is Rick Edelman, founder of the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, or DAC-FP. And today, we're going to be talking all about things in the domain of digital assets. And by that, I mean Bitcoin, Ether, DeFi, and all else crypto, and how DAC-FP and Rick Edelman are helping advisors to widen their scope of knowledge in that realm. Previously, Rick has been ranked three times as the nation's number one independent financial advisor by Barron's, is widely regarded as one of the most influential people in the investment management profession. And just in case you don't know, Rick Edelman is the founder of one of the largest retail investor-focused RIAs in the U.S. that bears his name. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Rick, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Pierre. Good to be with you all. So, Rick, uh, to kick things off, please tell us about the arc of your career and your background, where you've been and what you're up to now with DACFP. Uh, well, I have an unusual background uh, because I never went to business school, no economics degree, never took a business class in college. I used to brag about that, still do, actually. <laughs> I was a communications major. Uh, and I think that helped me in this business, uh, partly because in, in communications, they, they teach us how to talk, how to explain complex concepts in plain English. But I also wasn't brainwashed by uh, professors in economics, business, and finance. Uh, and so when I got into this field, uh, which I did because my wife and I, uh, newlyweds, uh, wanting to buy a house like so many typical uh, young couples, went to a financial planner for advice. And he ended up giving us really bad advice. Basically, he told us to commit a felony. Uh, he told us to lie on our mortgage application in order to qualify for the loan. Uh, and we were just infuriated. And so we decided, you know what, we're gonna teach ourselves how to do this and we're gonna show others what we've learned. And that's why we became financial advisors, started our practice in 1986. and. You fast forward to 2021, Edelman Financial Engines is, the, I think, the largest independent RIA in the country, managing close to $300 billion in assets for 1.4 million families across the country. And uh, along the way, I've always challenged conventional thinking because I didn't have a background in business. So when someone right. would say, here's why we do it, I would like, I'd be like, why? Explain that again? How, you know, everything from... Oh, pay off your mortgage, own your home outright. It was like, why? Um, and people's answer was, it, because that's the way we've always done it. Uh, I've discovered that a lot of people merely repeat what they've been told. They don't bother to check it out for themselves. And as a journalist, we're taught to ask questions, most fundamentally, why? Uh, validate the answers, uh, do your own research, um, get three sources before you proceed. And so I began to realize that a lot of the so-called advice that was commonplace in the 1980s and 90s was nonsense. Um, so we began offering different advice than was traditionally provided in the financial services community. And I began to get a reputation as controversial and unconventional. 
Um, but the fact is my advice is valid uh, and now widely adopted uh, in the industry. I had a bully pulpit of my radio show uh, and television, and I've now written uh, 10 books on personal finance. Uh, with a, I'm the number one New York Times bestselling author. We have a million copies of my books in print and seven languages. Uh, and I've been acknowledged as one of the leading uh, influencers, as you mentioned, and a thought leader in our field, because I'm always trying to look ahead. Where are we going? What's coming? What's the advice my clients are going to need in the future? Not what the advice they got in the past. The past doesn't matter. What got us here doesn't matter. It's where are we are today and where are we going? How are we going to get there? And so we've always provided innovative advice to our clients uh, based on the future that we think they're going to have. And that's what led me toward crypto. Um, right. I discovered Bitcoin in 2012. That's when I was introduced to it. Didn't make any sense to me, but it struck me as worth investigating. And so I did throughout much of 2013, began investing in 2014 and realized that this is the most profound, innovative technology since the internet itself. And most advisors don't realize it. They don't realize the incredible impact it's going to have on global commerce. They don't realize the incredible investment opportunities for their clients. And that's why I created DACFP, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, to teach the financial community about the incredible opportunities, as well as the disruptive nature of these technologies, so that we can continue doing a great job for our clients and our investors. Uh, and uh, it's been very exciting. And, and as the ultimate way of saying that I believe in this, I'm leaving Edelman Financial Engines uh, the end of 2021. We announced it back in June. Uh, that after 36 years, my wife and I are leaving the firm and we are focusing our energies on this educational pursuit for both investment advisors as well as consumers across the country, because this is the most transformative opportunity wow. since uh, the mid 90s. We don't want anyone to miss it. So how does how does the uh, Digital Assets Council uh, for the financial planners? So that is a totally new uh, venture then so you've 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 left or uh, moved away from the IR the RIA altogether or what, what's the relationship there still yeah it is or an is independent company that I've created Mike uh, I have uh, we knew this was coming you know I've been talking with our private equity partners for years uh, I've had PE partners since 05 and starting six years ago we realized that I would eventually be leaving the firm the firm needs to be able to stand on its own feet and, and grow all by itself without dependency on me and my wife. So we realized that we would eventually be leaving the firm and partly in anticipation of that three years ago, uh, we founded DACFP uh, and it's an independent organization. It's uh, an educational uh, focus. We're not selling product. It's not an AUM based business. It's a sponsor based business. Companies in the crypto field and companies in the financial services field are our sponsors because we enable them to reach financial advisors in a way nobody else can uh, with important programming, content, webinars, live events, uh, online content, um, video content. And we created the certificate in blockchain and digital assets. There's nothing else like it to teach financial professionals about this space. So uh, although I say I'm leaving Edelman Financial at the end of 2021, uh, I'm remaining on the board, uh, and I'm still the largest individual shareholder. Uh, but that—that's really it. I'm, I'm yeah. uh, my day-to-day -day activities and involvement of the firm uh, come to an end. Amazing. All right, and so 
Understood. Yeah. So, so you, you, you built that business, you're on the board, you, you see the, the new opportunity in the digital asset space and the, the, the lack of education and support. Are you, um, so, so how does that work? Where do you start? So there's some video education. Do you get into the, into the nuts and bolts of what's required in the business in helping financial advisors secure, you know, understand the need for insurance, let's say, as they advise on this asset class, how this inter integrates into the portfolio from an optimization perspective. I mean, the, 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 the suite of things one has to cover here are quite, are quite wide and yeah. broad. So, so give us, you know, give us the shakedown. Yeah, you're exactly right, Mike. Uh, it is a broad conversation and that is a little daunting. Uh, yeah, and it's also, you know, what I'm discovering is there's been a metamorphosis over the last decade as Bitcoin has evolved and it's not done evolving yet. But in the beginning, it was really easy for an advisor to just with a wave of their hand, wave off Bitcoin. Uh, it's a fad. It's a fraud. Uh, tulip bulbs or beanie babies. Um, just ignore it, dismiss it. It's too risky, too speculative, too much fraud. Stay away. Um, it was easy for an advisor to state to say that. Uh, they can't say it anymore. No. Uh, this isn't a fad. It isn't a fraud. It isn't going away. It's here to stay. It is increasingly impactful and increasingly ubiquitous in the marketplace. And advisors who continue to be ignorant to the subject are at significant risk of losing credibility, which is going to cause them to lose clients and assets. And the fascinating element of this is that uh, there has been, you know, a weird scenario with advisors, meaning, you know, most advisors are in their 60s. I mean, the average age of certified financial planners is 62. Um, most advisors have been doing this for 20, 30 years, you know, like me. And most advisors are very successful. We've got a thriving practice serving a lot of clients, managing a lot of money, hundreds of millions, often billions of dollars. And the clients are making a lot of money. They're, they're fat and happy. The advisors are fat and happy. Advisors are meeting with their clients periodically, playing golf one day a week. Why, why bother learning something new? Why bother getting involved in something new, especially as weird as Bitcoin? It's easy to just blow it off as unnecessary, irrelevant, even if you don't consider it a fat or a fraud, you could just argue it as a, so what? You know, I, I'm perfectly happy with my Coca-Cola. I don't need Dr. Pepper. Uh, and just leave it at that. The problem is that this asset class represents such an incredible investment opportunity. And because we're hearing about it and seeing about it so much everywhere, clients are now increasingly asking about it. In recent surveys, 80% of advisors say they're getting questions about this. And if I'm a client and I ask you, explain Bitcoin, should I buy Bitcoin? <clears throat> when the advisor can't answer those questions, I have to wonder what else don't they know? What else can't they help me with? My question about their credibility begins to come into, uh, into focus. And so advisors really don't have a choice but to become knowledgeable about this. And here's the crazy part, Mike. Bitcoin and digital assets broadly, along with blockchain technology, which allows Bitcoin to exist is totally different. It has nothing in common with any other asset class. There's no similarities to stocks or bonds or real estate or gold or oil or commodities. It's totally new and different. And that means you've got to start from scratch. You can't base your exploration on what you already know. 
And so here's the first message I give folks when they go through our seminars. The more knowledge you have as an advisor, the more experience you have, the more years you've been managing money, the harder it is for you to get your arm around this. Because all of your training, all your education, your college degrees, your professional designations, none of that is relevant here. None of it is helpful. This is why Jamie Dimon walks around the country saying Bitcoin is worthless. Bitcoin has no value. It's because Jamie Dimon is applying his classic experience, his training in economics and finance. It's of no value. And if you use those classic historic approaches, your head just explodes when you talk about Bitcoin. So this forces advisors to start from scratch, understand the technology, examine the commercial use cases, explore the different investment opportunities, and then we have to get into taxation, regulation, and compliance. There's no shortcut to this. And that's why we created the certificate program because in the 11 modules of that online self-study course, you learn all that. The first half is all about the tech. What is blockchain? What is Bitcoin? How does it work? But the second half of the course is all about practice management. What's the investment thesis? How do you construct a portfolio? What are the investment options? How do you deal with taxation? What about regulation and compliance? How do I do this without my compliance officer freaking out? How do I do it so I don't end up on page one of the local newspaper? How do I do it so I don't harm my clients? And that's what the course teaches you. And the, the final module in, in, in our course is how to communicate with clients. How do you explain this? How do you talk about it? How do you overcome the objections? So it's a very practical, hands-on approach that allows advisors to get their arms around this so that they can say, yeah, I get it. Now I can figure out how to proceed. Simple as that. No, and I, I think now, the... it's interesting that it's such a changing, fast-changing landscape right now, especially on the regulatory taxation side of things. Um, how, I mean, do you get advisors and financial planners to go through the course with the expectation that they have to update their CE credits every other week? I mean, how are you handling the content updating in such an incredibly fast-paced Well, here's the good news, uh, Rodrigo, is that the uh, events are changing daily. In fact, minute by minute, you know, that's the crazy thing. Bitcoin trades 24-7, seven mm -hmm. days a week. Um, so we don't have bankers hours like stocks and bonds do. Uh, so although that is evolving on an incredibly rapid pace, the fundamental content, the basic education parameters are evergreen. And therefore, For it sure. doesn't change much. The taxation is pretty much well set. Um, so there isn't uh, a lot of evolution there. The regulation also comes very slowly. Uh, the regulation, there's a lot of it in place, uh, enough of it that you can, with confidence, engage in your client portfolios without worrying about regulatory backlash. Um, and by, uh, by having this basic core understanding of how Bitcoin works and the difference between it and Ethereum, understanding DeFi and what is a central bank digital currency, these are evergreen topics. These are... Uh, carved in stone like the Ten Commandments, it doesn't require a lot of updating. It doesn't require uh, a lot of newness. Just like if I were to say to you, when interest rates rise, uh, bond prices fall. We know that's true. And we know that that never changes. Mm -hmm. That's not the same as telling you what interest rates are going to do next. So I can teach the principles 
which you can then adapt on a daily basis as needed. And that's very different from trying to predict tomorrow's interest rates. Does that make sense? Yep. For sure. So, so the basic, the basic underlying philosophy is low correlation, high volatility, probably. So proper portfolio construction. Where we, where I'm kind of curious about is kind of talking about the differentiation between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now we're going from like a concept, an asset right. class, a, a a space to security selection. Not that there's many securities to choose from as a financial right. planner right now, um, but. You know, I, I, I'm with you on the concept being important in portfolio construction. How do you put it together? At which point do you think it, it's important to get that granular at this stage for financial planners to really discern between one cryptocurrency? So it, it and does matter that you understand the basic concepts, but that's most of what you need to be doing. So I'll, I'll walk you through the steps very yeah. simply. First, get a basic understanding of the technology. It's not hard. Second, learn how that technology is used in commerce. This provides the legitimacy and justification for why it's not a Beanie Baby. I mean, Beanie Babies are cuddly and tulip bulbs are pretty to look at, but they don't have any use in business. Bitcoin does. There is a legitimate use case, thousands of them really, for how it helps businesses operate. And it's easy to understand those use cases because we're all good uh, people of business. We understand how business works and we can easily quickly see how Bitcoin is applicable in business. Next, you say, okay, what are the different options that are available in the world of digital assets? Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two elephants in the room. Between the two of them, they have like 80% of the market share. So just like Coke and Pepsi yeah. are enough in the soft drink industry, you could just go with Bitcoin and Ethereum and ignore everything else and you'll be fine, directionally correct. You don't have to be precisely right in order to be directionally correct. The next question is, how do I buy Bitcoin? How do I buy Ethereum? Today, you have a wide variety of options. There are probably a dozen different ways, different investment vehicles, everything from buying the coin directly to mining it, to buying um, a uh, mining stock, to buying an OTC security, a private placement for accredited investors, hedge funds, venture capital. You could buy uh, ETFs. Uh, you could buy Bitcoin futures ETFs. You could buy picks and shovels ETFs. There are so many different ways. You simply need to examine which of those different methods makes sense for your practice because advisors all have a particular way we engage in investments for our clients you could find the methodology that fits your practice best. And then you simply need a basic understanding of the tax rules. And you already know, without my telling you anything, you already know 90% of the tax rules. Uh, it's not complicated. No, not, I should say it's not different from what you already know with stocks and bonds and real estate. Uh, and then finally, uh, regulation and compliance. And a lot of these things like ETFs, they're just ETFs. There's nothing new or different from a compliance perspective. So once you walk through those basics, you'll realize, wow, this wasn't as hard to learn as I thought, and it wasn't as complex either. It makes sense, and I can now explain it to my clients, sure. which, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to explain for them to invest. Mm -hmm. You could very easily explain why they shouldn't. The point is you'll be able to do your job. Right. The best example I can give you or a comparison would be annuities. 
all advisors have strong opinions about annuities. I, I, everybody knows my opinions too. I'm not a fan uh, of annuity products, but guess what? I'm an expert in them. I can explain in great detail why I don't like them and the few cases where I do recommend them. I want you to have that same fluency with Bitcoin. I don't care whether you like Bitcoin. I want you to be able to talk about it competently, professionally, as a fiduciary, so you can do your job. This way, whether you recommend it or not, I don't care. I just want you to be able to serve your client's best interest. And at the moment, most advisors can't do that because they don't know anything about it. I think you hit on a really important point there and something that we were talking about in our other uh, show that we do live called Resolve Riffs. It's, it was uh, with uh, one of the CIOs uh, from another major RIA in the U.S. and just talking about that fiduciary obligation on a number of different asset classes and types. You, it's not just about the fee, mm -hmm. right? In the absence of value, sure, right. you negotiate fee and beta can be very cheap. But as you progress out to more sort of different frontier asset classes like digital assets or futures asset-based products or uh, alpha type products, you're going to pay more to have access, but it's not about the paying more. It's what does it add to the portfolio overall? Right. And I think that's that's something to, to really grasp. And the other thing that's been interesting, and I, I want to understand if, if you're sort of feeling this being on the on the cutting edge of this of this space. If we went back a year, I would say discussing digital assets and Bitcoin and Ethereum as a financial professional probably put you as a bit of a weirdo, maybe too much of a speculator and and put you maybe too frontier almost something that you couldn't quite talk about you maybe had to tiptoe around it how do you feel about this that overton window over the last 12 to 16 months has shifted dramatically where i think you absolutely need to be knowledgeable and can't be dismissive of the asset class anymore it's a two three trillion dollar asset class now and so are, are you are you feeling and seeing that as well? I'm sure you're banking on that sort of to ride that wave, but are you seeing that wave of advisors sort of come to you and looking for that because of that pressure from the client? Yes, it's entirely bottom-up driven. It's entirely investor-driven. Investors are hearing about Bitcoin. 17% of American adults own Bitcoin. 65%, two-thirds, call themselves crypto-curious. We're hearing about this everywhere. They're hearing it originally from their teenagers, right? Now they're seeing it in, in routine places. You see stories in USA Today uh, and the FTX, Wall Street Journal. Yeah. You are uh, watching the World Series, FTX, the world's biggest exchange, is plastered on so the empire's uniform. SoFi Stadium. Yeah. <laughs> now you've got Crypto.com just bought um, uh, the major stadium uh, in Los Angeles. You have Matt yeah. Damon as their spokesman. Yeah. Um, uh, Gronk and Tom Brady are both brand ambassadors for crypto companies. So this is everywhere. There's no walking away from it. And as a result, if it's in your face all the time, how can you say, I don't know anything about it? No, I can't explain it. Oh, just stay away. It's a fad. It's a fraud. That is just, that is too dismissive to be legitimate. So here's where the measurement of orders, especially if you're going to declare yourself a fiduciary, right? You can you can right. you can have an opinion that this right. is maybe not for somebody extremely speculative, or 
you don't think it'll last, you've had to do some research. And as a fiduciary, uh, you should be you should be well grounded in your opinion. Yeah. So and let me let me add the same thing. You know, Rick, the same thing seems to be happening with ESG as well, right? Where where yes. you know people That's don't pe yeah people don't know where to begin with it. They don't know they yeah. don't know where it starts and where it ends. And and I think the same thing is true with crypto. They don't know where it begins and ends either. It, it, so you know, I'll, I'll I'll take it this way. In you know, several years ago, people would ask, "Why are you buying Bitcoin?" To your point, Mike, you know, it was early, and you know, you must be a fringe lunatic out there. Why are you buying it? Today, the question has morphed. Why aren't you buying it? You've right. got to be able to defend to your client why you're saying no. Yeah. Why you're not recommending this? You could have reasons, but you need to be able to articulate them. And if you don't know anything about the subject, how can you articulate it? I was talking with a compliance attorney, a uh, consultant uh, in the field of compliance uh, to uh, major firms. And she told me something fascinating. She said that she is getting reports from financial firms telling her that in SEC examinations now, the examiners are asking the firms, are you recommending Bitcoin to your clients? And when the clients say no, the examiner then says, why not? You've got to have a legitimate reason for why you're not doing it. That's as important as your reason for why you are doing it. In other words, you've got to fulfill your fiduciary duty. It's okay not to recommend it. You just have to have a legitimate reason for it. The simple attitude of, oh, it's too volatile, that, that, that just doesn't cut it anymore. Yeah, it's ironic. I think that's really ironic. It's just such a complex have, you know, topic, as you said. It could be very simple, but people need a bit of a elevator pitch that's not the classic. Well, I like the blockchain. I don't know about that that Bitcoin thing, though. I think I think the first barrier to break has to be Bitcoin. What is the elevator pitch well, for Bitcoin? What's I mean, the not... economic reasoning for Bitcoin? R like, what's the, what's like that five-minute economic reasoning for that? It's not as complicated as it sounds. Yeah, I can give you a couple of very easy elevator pitches of, of explaining blockchain, explaining Bitcoin, explaining Ethereum, and why they have legitimacy in global commerce. It's not complicated at all. If you want to take a few minutes, I can yeah, go into that for you. By all means. I actually had that as one of my yeah. questions that I was going to ask you to explain it. Um, you know, we've, we've gone down the rabbit hole and down, 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 and... Um, and you know we're we're quite positive on the technology and and the investment asset class, but uh, conveying it in ways that help you know the client understand it, or I think, are extremely useful. I also think that there is a limited ability for the end client to actually understand any investment, uh, including something as simple as Coca Cola that they think they know and love. Yeah. yeah. Right. Understanding the price of sugar and, and petrol and the delivery of Coke and Pepsi and the food market and uh, the intricacies between the commodities markets that they face in delivering all of those foods is extremely complex well, and right. defies their ability to understand it. So having said that, you know, that, that sort of sets yeah. the, the playing field even that if you can explain a, a bank balance sheet to me. Uh, you, you, you can, you can certainly understand Bitcoin long before you can understand the derivatives book of a major bank that you might invest in.
So all, yes to all the above, and I'll, I'll take it a step further though, because all of it can seem intimidating. And here's what I'd simply tell folks. You don't have to understand the principles of internal combustion in order to be able to drive a car. Right. Uh, and by the same thing here, you don't have to understand the technology underlying Bitcoin. You don't have to understand blockchain. It'd be nice if you did, but it's not a prerequisite. Uh, nor is it a prerequisite that you like Bitcoin or that you agree with it as a premise for investment purposes. If you're truly a fiduciary, I'm willing to bet that you have recommended to your clients a highly diversified portfolio, 16, 15, 20 asset classes, stocks, bonds, government securities, real estate, oil, commodities, foreign, I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? You have you a preach, preach, Rick, preach. You have a broad diversified <laughs> portfolio. I'm willing to bet that in your portfolio right now, there are assets you don't like, but you have them in the sure. portfolio because you know that a diversified portfolio, that's the whole point, yeah. right? Of, of positive and negative correlations of having different assets that have different features, different, you know, all different profiles, different risk and return, all that kind of good structural, stuff. different structural relationships to different markets that you occur, know, cause them to move in price at different times. So therefore, Bitcoin is simply yet another but I guess, asset guys, class. Like, I mean, so you don't honestly, have to like it. This is all true, and we don't have to like it. But it's literally the only asset class that feels like yeah. it has no economic reasoning. It feels like that that Beanie Baby scenario. It feels like something made up in the internet so that you could like buy and sell drugs. So, so how do we go from that to talk about Bitcoin yeah. as an, with an economic reason? <laughs> okay. So I it, see okay. Rod, Rod is... Yeah, where do you so let me Rodrigo give you is playing the devil's advocate well. Yeah, let me give you job, a five-minute riff here because Rodrigo has just asked the question that matters yeah. most. So let me just walk you through this to help you understand why it isn't tulip bulbs and beanie babies and why it isn't only for drug smugglers and rogue nations. Uh, you begin with uh, blockchain technology. Blockchain technology is nothing more than a public ledger. Well, what the heck is that? Well, contrast a public ledger to a private ledger. We all know what private ledgers are. That's your checkbook. That's your Excel spreadsheet on your computer monitor. When you create a ledger, you own it. It's yours. You're the only one who has access to it. You enter data as you wish. You put data in the cell of an Excel spreadsheet. You put an entry in your checkbook, a deposit or a withdrawal. That's all there is to it. You can change that data whenever you want. And if somebody wants to take a look at your data, you can falsify the data and show them a duplicate checkbook or a ledger that is fake. And we've all heard of two sets of books. This is how Al Capone ended up in prison, right? So it's because we don't trust the ledger because it's personal, private, you have control over it. That's why we have auditors. That's why we have so many accountants in the world. That's why banking is so expensive because we hire all of these auditors and then government regulators on top of them because nobody trusts the data. And that's the whole key is the word trust. We work in a trust economy. I want to buy a house from you. You want to sell it to me. I have to trust that you own the deed free and clear. And I don't trust you. So I hire a title settlement company and then I pay for title insurance. I add thousands of dollars to the transaction, spending months in additional time and effort and paperwork because I don't trust you. But our trust economy forces us to behave that way. Blockchain is a public ledger, not a private ledger. When the blockchain is created, the ledger is on computers all over the world. 
anybody can put data onto the blockchain. But once the data is there, it's permanent, immutable. It cannot be changed, deleted, copied, or erased. It's there for everybody to see all the time. So imagine three cells in an Excel spreadsheet, the seller of the house, the deed, and the buyer of the house. Three cells of data, all next to each other, they are linked. Three blocks of data, and they are connected like links in a chain. Block, chain. It's as simple as that. So the blockchain makes sense. It allows us to put data available. It's transparent. It's permanent. It's free. That is easy to understand. But what's Bitcoin got to do with that? Yeah. Think about a casino. If you like to play blackjack, you walk into a casino, they won't let you play dollars on the table. They force you to convert your dollars into casino chips. You play your roulette, your, your craps, and your poker, and your blackjack. You play with casino chips. And when you're done, you convert your casino chips back to dollars. If you want to play on the blockchain, if you want to put data onto the blockchain, the medium of exchange is Bitcoin. Just like casino chips are the medium of exchange in a casino. Just like airline miles are the medium of exchange for loyalty points to get free air travel. It's just the medium that we use on the technology. We needed a digital form of money because paper money doesn't work on the internet. We needed digital money. So Bitcoin simply allows us to do what we're trying to do on the blockchain. That's all there is to it. With me so far? Yes. <clears throat> Why are there more coins yeah. than just Bitcoin? Yeah. Why do we have 5,000 coins? I'll give you an example. Bitcoin is pretty dumb. If I send you Bitcoin, you receive it. But I might not want you to receive it. I might want you to receive the Bitcoin only when you perform a task, such as sending me concert tickets or giving me the deed to that house. Or I might want you to receive my Bitcoin only if the temperature reaches a certain level or somebody wins a sporting event or somebody wins an election or if it rains. In other words, it's an if-then scenario. In other words, a contract. That's what contracts are. I do something, you do something, and money changes hands. That's what Ethereum is. That's why Ethereum was invented. It's a, known as also as a smart contract, whereas Bitcoin is a dumb contract. I press the button, you receive it. Ethereum says, I press the button, you receive it when you perform. In other words, it works like an escrow account. Every industry in the planet can take advantage of online digital contracts that eliminate the middleman because we're no longer dealing with trust. You don't have to trust me that I'm going to pay you because I've already sent the money. It's in escrow on the internet. When you deliver the product or the service, you automatically receive the money. So Bitcoin is dumb money. It's fast. It's easy. Ethereum is smart money that allows you to execute corporate contracts. And that's why the two of them represent 80% of the market. All the other coins, they do other nifty stuff solving a particular need that a particular business has. And they're all fascinating in their own ways, but Bitcoin and Ethereum, 
to the Coke and Pepsi of the soft drink world. I suppose you could, that's where you get the next layer goes into the oracles well, yeah, who I think, decide that, in fact, said thing was done to said quality level yeah. and, and said payment should be made. There, so, we, but it is interesting how they, as deeply as you want. Correct. correct. What I've just done for you is provided the very basic rudimentary elements yeah. of what is blockchain, why do we need Bitcoin, and then why do we need Ethereum if we have Bitcoin? Yeah, and then there, yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the key aspects here that you mentioned was that how how you can cut out the middleman and why that's important. I don't think people in, understand how clunky anything that has to do with yeah. contracts, exchanges of deeds, right. even trying to audit your aeroplan miles and whether, okay, did they give me the right miles or not? I have to trust that company that they did the calculation in the background to give me the appropriate amount right. of miles. There's no way for me to have a public mm -hmm. ledger where you, Rick, Mike, or Pierre also made sure that what they were putting on was correct and that's publicly available for anybody to see and anybody to audit, not have to pay KPMG So let me give you an example. Uh, I have a, a, a very, and then a I have very a simple use case. Uh, let me do this, Pierre, and, I'll, yeah. and this will help explain your point, Rodrigo. Um, if you want to move money cross-border, this is a $4 trillion industry. Every year, $4 trillion moves from one country to another cross-border. To do that, we use the, the SWIFT system. This is what the, the international banking process. It takes five days and an average of 6.5% in fees to move money from one country to another. Of that $4 trillion, about 20% of it are individuals. Immigrants in the United States who came from Central or South America, for example, left their home country for economic opportunity. They left behind their parents, their families. They're living in the U.S. making money, so they want to send money home. They do it through Western Union, the switch system. With Bitcoin, El Salvador declared Bitcoin legal tender in 2021. Now, using Bitcoin, it doesn't take five days, 6.5%. It takes 10 minutes, and it's free. When they did this in El Salvador, by the way, their economy is so bad, 20% of their GDP are transmittals. People yeah. sending and people money forget. into the country from overseas. Yeah. This so, is huge. This is literally a 20% VIG on a large part of a small economy's GDP so, is caught up in remittance, a total tax upon the unbanked. It was uh, estimated that when El Salvador did this, Western Union was going to lose $400 million <laughs> because people no longer wow. needed to use Western yep. Union to send money home to mom. And I'll take it a step further. The El Salvadorian government announced a couple of months after they did this, there was a dramatic reduction in street crime because crooks know that mom is walking from her village 10 miles on a dirt road to the Western Union office and is going to walk out with cash and she gets robbed. Yeah. Well, now the so, money shows up on mom's phone in her house. This is, see, these, these are the cases that are important to talk about. I grew up in Lima, Peru. And there was, a, there was a, a block where you had, in every corner of that block was a different bank. And people would get paid, would have their preferred banks. So you would get paid in different banks and have to transfer money from one place to the other.
the cost was so much to move it from one bank to the other over the phone that people would take out cash and then go in groups of three, split out the money, and run to the other side of the bank because you knew that if you like, if anybody gathered that you had a nice chunk of change, you were going to get robbed, and people did all the time. It was a cottage industry for, for bank robbers in between exchanging money physically because you had to carry the dough. This is an interesting case study of, mm-hmm. of people wanting to make a living, not having to fear that their life's money was, is just going to go. And that's just friend. one of thousands of commercial use cases across the planet to illustrate how this matters. See, as Americans, it's easy for us and, and Canadians as well to look at Bitcoin as an interesting fad, but so what? You know, the banking system yeah. works. We all love to hate it, but, you know, it works. I get my money digitally. I'm paying my bills, often with an auto pay. I have a good banking relationship. What's the big deal? We forget that there are a billion people on this planet that don't have a bank account, but they do have a, have a telephone. Yeah. You don't even need a smartphone. An ordinary cell phone is all you need to be able to work with Bitcoin. This is a big deal in countries and economies that are not as solid and stable and huge as that of those in North America. And it, it, I think it goes beyond just the, you know, sort of the the, the G7, um, you know, even into some of the European countries, um, you know, there is often, um, well, Latin America is a great example where you've had all kinds of different types of inflation, all types of confiscation, right? It is It is the structure and the rule of law and the certainty of that rule of law that provides the confidence in the system and the actual lubrication in the system that makes it that function in an okay way. I would say, you know, largely in Canada, it's the same. We have, you, you, you can do something via Swift. You can do something through, through an EFT. There's half a dozen banks in the country. Things move really smoothly. You're pretty safe walking to and from your bank. <laughs> like all of these things are, make, I think some folks in, in developed nations truly underestimate the potential impact on not only sort of third world emerging, but also those second world countries. I mean, this has serious implications um, in in all of those cases. And then you get into some of the business cases, whether it's, you know, um, uh, tracking uh, packages, the the sort of the, the tracking side of it beyond the financial industry, global payments. As you say, that you just keep going down the list of things that this technology can right. help uh, accomplish it's it's pretty amazing and i think that you know in a first world nation uh like in north america it, it it's easily overlooked yeah yeah you had a question i think i, I had a question it, the qu- even in domestic okay go ahead please, yeah my, my question was you know going back to the origins of bitcoin how was it established like i know when i buy us dollars for canadian you know, I, I pay a price for it. There's an exchange rate. It's established. I know it's, you know, the full faith and honor of the U.S. government when I buy a U.S. dollar or any other currency for that matter. How uh, how and who and where was it established that Bitcoin had an initial value that you could exchange for money, for cash, mm-hmm. or for one currency yeah, for another? Like a, like, so, and, and how has that carried on? And how this, this is like, you know, because most people look at this and they think this came out of vapor. You know, this came out of a server. It's created on a computer on silicon. 
and and mm-hmm. and uh, so how do you justify what it's worth then and you know yeah. then when it was a dollar or less than a dollar and now when it's you know sixty seventy thousand well, dollars it was a, a tiny fraction of a penny yeah. uh, in the beginning um, at its first valuation which took months uh, you're right this is where people's heads explode because who who are these people who says Bitcoin is worth anything why should I believe them who backs Bitcoin and the answer is nobody backs it. And when they say, and and the funny thing is, nobody backs the dollar either. The dollar yeah. used to be backed by gold. Well, we left the gold standard during Richard Nixon's presidency, and right now, gold or rather, the dollar is just printed. Look at the pandemic. The Fed has printed five trillion dollars. Uh, Joe Biden is pushing through Congress another three and a half trillion and a couple of major pieces of legislation. That money is coming off the printing press. Nothing is backing it, other than the government saying they will back it. Right. In other words, it's confidence. It is investor and consumer confidence that says, I believe you when you tell me a dollar is worth a dollar, or more accurately, a dollar is worth three apples. But there is nothing backing it. So when Bitcoin was invented... I would would offer one nuance there. Mm -hmm. So the dollar is largely backed by the power of taxation and the right of confiscation over right. the assets within the economy that the governing body of those people has. It's the right of power of taxation written in the rule of law. So in essence, it's the right of violence over the people within the governing <laughs> uh, populace. I'm not sure that if that's better or worse, but it's, it's not, it's not better. It's just fact, yeah. right? Yeah. How, how would we look at what the gold confiscation in the great depression Look at uh, money printing throughout time. Look at confiscation in Argentina, right? It's violence, financial violence against the populace that's governed. That's what backs whatever dollar there is. And uh, yeah, the security. Now, you may the... like or not like that. <clears throat> and even when the government is benign and helpful, it has in the U.S. a price target of uh, reducing the value of the dollar by 2% per year. In Correct. 2021, it's being reduced by 6.5% a year. So... Uh, that makes it easier for the government to repay its debts in the future because they repay with cheaper future dollars. It was under this environment in 2008 that led Satoshi Nakamoto, who nobody knows who that is, to introduce an alternative that Satoshi felt was superior, a currency that was not invented, created, or sponsored by a government. It is not a fiat currency. And so Bitcoin was invented via computer code with a specific 21 million coins made. That's it. That's the maximum. They're being released over time. 18 and a half million of them so far. The remaining will be released over the next 120 years on a set programmable schedule. Bitcoins are released about every 10 minutes. And it is it is the crux of the issue, Pierre, and that's why I'm glad you asked. I mentioned earlier that Jamie Dimon says that Bitcoin uh, is worthless, It has no intrinsic value. He's been saying this consistently. Warren Buffett called Bitcoin rat poison squared. Can I can I also offer a little nuance on Warren Buffett and his major investment in Nubank out of Brazil, a massive uh, digital asset bank that serves uh, digital asset companies and digital asset infrastructure and funds and and hedge funds. I don't know if we all know that, but a couple billion dollars, which now they are taking public as an IPO on the on the Nasdaq, which he's been funding yeah. at the same time that he was talking about it being rat poison. So don't look that at was, what these so, professionals yeah. say. They're talking their book. 
look at what they do and Jamie Dimon doesn't have the infrastructure yet to offer you this thing. So he says it's, it's garbage. He doesn't have the infrastructure yet. Mark my words, they'll be offering it to their top clients eventually. But let's examine why all, yes to all the above, and let's also examine why Jamie says it is uh, of no intrinsic value. We talked about the economic formulas that you use. You know, if I'm trying to figure out what's the value of a stock, I look at the company, I look at its revenues, its profits, its products. I look at how much a competing company in the same industry has recently sold for, and I can come up with a valuation based on that. But Bitcoin is not a company. It has no product. There are no employees. There are no revenues. There's no sales. There's no profits. There's no location, no headquarters. All those answers are zero. And on that basis, you have to conclude the value is zero. That's why Jamie says this, because all the numbers are zeros. Here's the point. Bitcoin might not have a value, but it sure as hell has a price. And just as we all agree as to the value of a dollar, we all agree on the value of a Bitcoin. As we're recording this, about $60,000. So we agree on the price. And the reason we're agreeing on it is because of the law of supply and demand. There are only 18 and a half million Bitcoins, about 4 million are presumed to be lost, just like there's gold at the bottom of the ocean from galleons that sank in the Mediterranean a thousand years ago. Bitcoins lost from hard crash drives, failing, uh, people losing their passwords because they're idiots, all kinds of reasons. 14 million hey, Bitcoins. Hey, I'm right here. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. There's 14 million Bitcoins out there. There's going to be another couple of million minted over the next century. If every millionaire in the world wanted to buy one Bitcoin, they couldn't do it because there are 47 million millionaires. There's only 21 million Bitcoins. So as demand grows right now, only 200 million people around the world own Bitcoin. As the demand grows, if the supply cannot grow, the price has to. It's basic economics. And this is one of the big reasons so many people are so excited about digital assets because of the law of supply and demand. Imagine if you could have bought Facebook when it had 200 million users instead of the two and a half billion users it has today. Look at the price of Facebook then to today. Look at the price of Bitcoin today to where it may be in the future. How much? Um... And I think the important thing to understand about this currency thing and Mike, yes, the U.S. has power and every every sovereign nation has power over their people. But when we're talking about global community, there is a network effect required for you to be the reserve currency of the world. Enough people in the world need to want to use your currency for it to have value above everybody else's. And this is what's happened over the years in the United States based on a, a wide variety of things, no less their economy is strong enough to back from a perceptual perspective that the U.S. currency should be strong as well. Right. In if you look at Venezuela and Argentina, they try to do the same thing the U.S. does, but their currency is not in high demand. This is why it, hyperinflation exists there in Brazil. It's been fits and starts in most of South American countries. We've seen it. The network effect is how you get the exchange rate between one currency in one world and another. The network effect is all that the U.S. has backing for it. And the network effect is what's driving the price of all of these currencies. Now, we do have to talk about the elephant in the room here. I mean, is the network effect long, strong enough to 
eventually see the type of volatility we see in currencies today, which is very small, right? We don't see big swings between the euro and the US dollar, but we do see 10, 20, 30% swings in Bitcoin right now, right? And so how does, like, this is an emerging economy, an emerging um, uh, asset class. The big players still hold the vast majority of coins. We don't know who they are. The world is coming to play and the big players are going to be doling off a piece of what they have until it becomes fully democratized, right? So at some point, as more people adopt, the volatility is going to subside. The question is, how quickly does it come? Can we really call it a currency or anything like that until that day does come? And, and I, I think that? you're right. I think it is continuing to evolve. Even though it is entering the mainstream, it is still extraordinarily young. We still don't have the ultimate set of regulations we're going to have on a global basis. Individual companies are still trying to sort all this out. You have technological innovation that will continue that could make some current coins obsolete, replaced by the next new thing that doesn't even exist yet. You know, Facebook versus MySpace, you know, blockbuster video killed by Netflix, that kind of thing. So we don't know. You're raising really good concerns. And that is why my recommendation is 1% asset allocation. That's all. I would not recommend 20, 30, 50, 60% of your portfolio in Bitcoin and digital assets because the future is still yet to be written. I'm pretty confident about the stock market over the next 50 years, but I can't say with as great a degree of confidence what the digital asset marketplace is going to look like. I don't know where the winners are going to be. I don't know what the regulation is going to be. I don't know what the technology is going to be. I don't know what consumer demand is going to be. But a 1% allocation has been demonstrated through the life of Bitcoin over the last 12 years that this can have a material improvement in your returns, but if it blows up, the 1% is not going to interfere with your financial security. You'll still be able to retire in comfort. So you have the upside potential without excessive risk. 1% allocation is really all it takes. Yeah, but so... So what's, what this brings up another important question about portfolio construction, especially with Bitcoin, an asset class that has a volatility of 80 to 100 percent. When it comes to financial planners and how they deal with portfolios, let's say they meet with their clients once a quarter, once every six months, sometimes once a year. And that's generally when they have the rebalancing conversation. Right. When an asset class can go up three, four, five, ten times, how often does one need to rebalance? And. I imagine it's higher frequency. And then how do we take into account the cost of rebalancing uh, and having to keep on top of things as a, as a planner, as an as a investment advisor? How do you recommend people handle rebalancing and portfolio construction? The history shows us that rebalancing is tremendously valuable at reducing risks. Uh, and uh, the, it makes a lot of sense to rebalance and to do tax management uh, in the portfolio using uh, Bitcoin. Its volatility is your friend, especially when you dollar cost average. Uh, so the volatility, we know volatility is our friend in stocks. And since Bitcoin's volatility is even more, it's even more of our friend. So should you rebalance? And if so, how often? My personal view is more of a let it ride scenario today. I have not sold any of my digital assets since buying in 2014. Uh, it has now become a much larger piece of my overall portfolio um, than it started out as. But I believe that there's still a lot of runway. And I, I'm a, I'm, my wife and I are over the financial circumstances. We can afford the risk that we're taking. 
Um, so we've agreed to let it ride for now without rebalancing. In fact, we're continuing to add to the portfolio with new investments. But for most folks who are trying to balance risk and return, who are simply trying to improve the um, uh, efficiency of their portfolio, we know the efficient frontier and Markowitz's modern portfolio theory, then you should rebalance on a quarterly or semi-annual basis. You should do that. Um, it's entirely up to you. You should look at it through your risk return profile with your goals and objectives in conjunction with your client and financial advisor relationship to determine what's best. Yeah, there, there's a couple of good resources out there. I think Bitwise has a really good white paper on, you know, walking through that whole process of what's the allocation, how often you should uh, 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 rebalance. I think OnRamp also has some very similar and good quality information that would help build your knowledge pool. And, you know, granted, Rick, you've got a deep understanding of this space. So having an overweight is perfectly legitimate. But you don't want a tourist who's more used to having more traditional assets encounter a tracking error that is going to be deleterious to their long-term behavioral commitment to their investment program. So yeah. I think that's that's We're not trying advice. to. And, there's and look, there is a cost to rebalancing too much. And I think there's a product out there for Americans that I find interesting that just come out. I think it's, it's, it's very um, innovative where they said, look, let, let us handle the rebalancing cost. We'll buy this ETF, which is the S&P 500, but with a 10% allocation yeah. to crypto, we'll do the rebalancing for you and, you know, size it so that you get your right. 1%, yeah. right? right? I thought that was very neat and yep. interesting. Yeah. And that's great, great products. There's so many different ways to invest today yeah. that fit perfectly into a, an advisor's uh, practice management. So I, I want to come back well, um, just briefly, Rick. I yeah. just want to come back to the question of how, how the value came about. Um, and I, I think from what I understood, what I understood you say, maybe you can just verify if, if I was right or wrong in, in the understanding, was that the exchange rate itself, and the which is being moderated on the other side by the mining, the verification process, which creates new coins in the long run, uh, and then uh, the third factor being the supply and demand, the overall supply and demand, Basically, the use, the increasing use, the network effect use on Bitcoin and the exchange rate on the exchange rate. I mean, it's it's really like I almost feel like it's an exchange rate on an exchange rate. And and no, uh, somebody once asked me you know, here the, one the, day, <laughs> how come the stock market went up? And I said, because there were more buyers than sellers. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, you know, it's hard to answer the question definitively. Why is Bitcoin's price what it is today? Why did it go up or down from yesterday right. or last hour? I, you know, we can, we can play all day long with answering that question. But it, it kind of, uh, it, kind I, of I, it kind of exists. Sorry, to, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it kind of exists because it exists. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it, because there's demand, there's demand. For it, it, there's it, it, it exists demand. because it's useful. Yeah, I mean, it was once useful. Yeah, it was, no, no, right. no, 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 no. This is not a chicken and egg question. Yeah, it exists because people are buying it. People are buying it because it is useful. Right, and people believe it will continue to be usefulness, and that means there will be an increase in the number of people who want to buy it. And since there's a limited supply, I'll be able to. They have no choice but to buy mine from me because there's no other way for them to get it. Yeah, uh, so and therefore, therefore the supply demand are, wins out. 
kind of like there the uh, it's kind of like classes. the uh, the Big Bang of the universe too, right? What what came before then? Um, <laughs> well, it's not it's not totally unique though. But yeah. I th- I don't think we should we should think about it as totally unique. There yeah. are other asset classes that historically have been around for quite some time that have the same properties. Gold is one of them. Right. The industrial use case for gold is almost zero. It, it's less than one percent of the gold production, and there's a stock to flow model. So if if again, as advisors want to dig into this further and understand some ways in which you might have a valuation metric for these types of assets, Bitcoin is a store of value. As Rick has alluded to, there are only going to be X number of coins. And so if you think about that stock to flow model, diamonds, real estate, gold, silver, all of those assets share very similar qualities. And if you look up Plan B, uh, Plan BTC, he's done some pretty extensive research on how one might think about that. I'm not saying he's right. I'm not saying he's wrong. What I'm saying is he presents very good and thoughtful mathematical models that lever off of the experience that we've had in other asset classes primarily gold. Gold is a store of value. It's something that you can't make $5 trillion worth of gold just appear Mm -hmm. in your fiat currency, right? You don't have the ability to do that. Uh, Maybe if you go mine off off an asteroid, like like, uh, uh, a Tesla guy said, but really you don't have that. So there are some very good mathematical formulas that are out there that I would offer for people to go dig into those things if they really want to you know, you want to go deep down the rabbit hole, then people people will say, Mike, people will say that gold is a finite element in the periodic mm-hmm. table, right? And so and there's only so much of so it. So is the Bitcoin. Yeah, but Bitcoin and, came out well, of but the digital but, world, right? It was created but, with a finite comp- component of 21 million coins, right? And here's the beautiful yeah. thing, and I think I think Rick, I'm going to ask you to actually maybe elaborate on how you would explain this to people because. I want a better story to explain for folks, but it takes energy to actually do the mathematical calculations behind those blocks that were linked together that Rick talked about earlier. There's a cost cost to to that. That's right. So money's not free, just like mining gold. There's a cost to it. So the cost of the mining and production versus the price today will encourage miners to mine the gold or not. This is very similar to how mining works in in the crypto space. There's a difficulty adjustment. If there's lots of capacity generating the hashes and solving the ownership puzzle of who owns what, the difficulty rises. If there's not, the difficulty falls and the profit to the miner fluctuates based on that. Yeah. So so it's like it's like all of this is to say it's like when people traded. You know, when people when people first started using money and they figured out, you know, uh, specialization, I can work. And in return for that work, I get money. That's the the rate of exchange is the yep. amount of work that I do. And in this case, what you, I, what you're getting at here is that the the rate of exchange for Bitcoin is the amount of work and energy that's required to verify the transactions. Right. Well, it's not only that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's that. And that's a hard thing that yeah. makes the money hard. Right. A fiat money is soft. It can be printed out of thin air. Hard money is like gold, is like Bitcoin. There is a process that must happen that has energy costs to actually doing this calculation. 
This is what a trustless society, a trustless ledger, why it provides so much faith and trust that you can have in it. And this is the thing, Rick, I would turn over to you. How do you sort of explain or have you come up with a good way to explain this idea of this trustless calculation of these blocks, right? Like you, you were saying, like we, we need trust. I don't trust you. So I have to have this third party come in and verify the title. And in the mathematical calculation, no one trusts anybody. So you have to do these very hard calculations in order to, to create the actual blockchain. But within this trustless society comes something you can actually trust. Yes. You know there's no more currency yeah. that's going to be made. You know that it's a hard currency. And you know the calculations that you can rely on the transition of value that's happened, whether it's coming from Ethereum to a Bitcoin or Lightning. Anyway. Right. I'll shut up. Well, there are um, a couple of things to that. Number one is, um, instead of trust, I would love to rely on proof. Right. Better and word. You're right. And that's what Bitcoin is. It is proof of work. The, the mining process, which validates transactions, is proof of work. And that work requires energy to power those computers. Uh, and it uses quite a bit of energy. Um, which has been a criticism, mm -hmm. but proof of work is not the only way to prove that the information on a blockchain is valid. There's also a process called proof of stake instead of proof of work. And Ethereum, among others, uses proof of stake. They don't require the mining crypto, uh, uh, crypt cryptographic exercise. They don't use all of that energy consumption of, of hard drives and computer systems. They're much more energy efficient because they use a different technological methodology that was invented after Bitcoin, partly because of criticism about Bitcoin's energy consumption. So you can use Ethereum, which doesn't burn all that energy using a proof of stake model. The bottom line is they're still both cryptographically proven which eliminates the trust. And that goes very far to allowing people to say with confidence, I'm willing to engage in this. Uh, and it's, we're getting into an internal combustion conversation. I'd rather stick <laughs> yeah. with the steering wheel with brake and the gas pedal, because that's all the people yeah. need to worry about, along with maybe a rear view mirror. Yeah, so yeah. All, all these things are... Well, yeah. let's talk about the criticism at a time where we have ESG as, a, as a, the second most favorite topic of the day. So you got um, the European Union pushing back on anything crypto because of this criticism of it being a energy consumer that is going right. to pollute. Um, and, uh, and so that's come front and center. It's come, it's, it's come back. I think there's been a couple of arguments back and forth that have helped the case. But why don't you walk us through what you're sure. seeing there and, and what, how the battle So right. there's data showing that the Bitcoin miners all around the world are burning more energy than some small countries. They're burning more energy than Argentina, for example. Uh, and therefore this is bad for the planet because Bitcoin doesn't have any particular in, you know, intrinsic purpose. So it's burning energy in a, in, and we all know about the climate change problem and therefore Bitcoin is bad. Uh, I have two answers. The first one is really fast. The other one is a little longer. The fast answer is if Bitcoin's energy usage bothers you, don't buy Bitcoin. Buy Ethereum, because Ethereum doesn't burn energy in that way. It's proof of stake, not proof of work. So there are plenty of digital assets that use proof of stake, don't have this energy issue. 
That's the short answer. Second answer, the criticism that Bitcoin is getting is mostly nonsense for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's not about the energy, it's about the CO2 levels. If the energy is clean energy, then nobody cares. And the estimates range between 40% and 60% of all the Bitcoin mining is clean energy, renewable energy. Uh, in El Salvador, it's volcanic. They're, yeah. they're taking geothermal energy from a nearby volcano to power the Bitcoin mining. Uh, in uh, Riot Blockchain's case, the biggest uh, publicly traded Bitcoin miner, they're doing this next to uh, water. Flare gas. They're doing it um, alongside rivers and waterfalls where the uh, energy is producing, uh, the water is producing the water power, the energy. And by the way, if they didn't use it to power a Bitcoin mining facility, it would just end up in the Gulf of Mexico. Nobody's using the energy because it's excess energy. There are lots of examples of this. Here's another one, another illustration. The amount of energy it takes to manufacture a car is huge. But once the car is built, the amount of energy it takes to use the car isn't very much. Bitcoin's the same thing. Once the Bitcoins are mined, they trade, they move back and forth among users at extraordinarily little levels of energy. So if it bothers you about Bitcoin, don't mine it. Buy a Bitcoin that already exists from somebody else. Minimal energy usage. Right. It's the idea of it's the idea of gold, right? You can I can go in an exchange and buy a gold ETF right now, put it in my account, it's done three day settlement, which is eight like year, late years like too much compared to crypto. But I, I have some gold in my account. Now what actually happened is was a change in ownership within an exchange. Right. No gold went from one vault to the next. But if I do want my gold to be moved from one vault to the next, it's going to cost me thousands of dollars and we're going to pollute in order to make this happen. I want to take it from the European vault to my Caymanian vault over here and then transfer it over. It's, it's a massive proposition. The same way crypto has this need right now to mine. Once you've mined to transact big blocks, you need to continuously, you need to have those miners do the work, do the proof of work for these big blocks. But now we have layer twos. Right, and layer three solutions. We have exchanges. When I buy or sell a Bitcoin in FTX, I'm not going out to the blockchain and asking them to transact for me. I'm literally doing a change of, uh, of ownership and a second layer that allows us to not pollute and be able to use Bitcoin from for for real purpose. That's a great right? example. So this is where it's just going to get easier yeah, and easier. That's a great. Right? It's going to get, and and again, the the economic reasoning for or the economic. Um, uh, incentive for these miners is not to find the most polluting way of capturing and, and mining. It's to find the cheapest right. way to capture it. And what is that? It's everything you mentioned. It's going out to like a, a nuclear power plant that has peak hours where they can't use that energy. But when they have lulls and all this energy is coming into the, uh, the nuclear power plant, they can use it at half the price. Right. So they're getting cheap access by being smart and actually using energy. There are some people who argue again, it's all it's all very interesting. There are there are some people who argue that as uh, corporate um, leaders struggle to figure out how to go green. Um, I mean, they have a motivation to do so. We understand that uh, there's an economic motivation aside from a social and a human one. There's an economic motivation for them to lower their energy cost. No business has more 
of its P&L associated with energy than Bitcoin miners. Because Bitcoin miners aren't manufacturing a product. They don't have employees. They're just mining with a computer. They spend more money on energy than they do any other aspect of their business. They have more motivation to lower their energy costs than anybody. And the best way to lower your energy cost is to go green. Burning coal is absurdly expensive. Doing it in a green way is the cheapest possible way. So some people argue that our nation, our world's climate problem is going to be solved by Bitcoin miners because they are the most incentive to do so. They, literally the... That's a good the, one. I like that. I like that judo the, move right the, there. Well, you, you, you look at the, uh, the, the wasted electrons. So we're moving from a petrodollar society, which is the petrodollar was why the U.S. dollar was so popular. And it was the basis for the oil trade, which is what powered the world. But now we move away from that trade. And now it's electrons that power everything, whether that be the batteries in cars or potentially the currency and the blockchain technology. And as we move there, stranded opportunities of energy become live to the entire global system. So you've got all the flare gas coming out of Alberta and Texas. And Validus is a company that's partnered with Hot8. And, you know, Validus, the, one of the guys there is an old friend from back in GMP days. And, and so here we have gas that's being flared into the atmosphere, burned uh, without any recuperation whatsoever that's now being harnessed, repurposed, and it can be done anywhere. You satellite link to the, to, the, uh, to the node, and now you mine Bitcoin with what was wasted energy and all the other byproducts that come out of it. Because the profitability of the mining of this, this asset class, you also have the money to get all the other liquids out of it, right? And, and so now you have... Iceland and all of its geothermal potential energies that can now be put into the system, into the financial system. Now, think about earlier how we talked about the tax that was on the transfer of payments. That tax is gone. Where does that money go? That money goes back into the, it goes to those who need it most so they can feed their families, maybe upgrade their standard of living, right? So we have this old system and people will make these comparisons as though the current system has no energy footprint. The current system has a significant energy footprint. You have to have all those Western Union uh, those branches. You have to have all those bank branches. Those bank branches need electricity. They need employees. There's all They need buildings. There's all kinds of stuff here that, that is really interesting. And, and I get it's a, you know, it's one of these charged topics. Change is tough. Um, but it, it really Look, it's is a memified, it's a memified world, right? right. And so these things, uh, and it's been driven largely by memes, but it's also been the biggest attractor almost always when something becomes memeified, when my wife is like, Oh my God, I heard that Bitcoin's really bad for the economy. I knew I had to be like, yeah, this is the opposite of this. <laughs> Obviously something became so goddamn popular that if I dig one level lower, I'm actually going to find most of the truth. And then five to six levels lower is you actually get the complete opposite reality. Uh, and so I think it needs to, as we, as this becomes more popular and it, ha it has more enemies than anything I've ever seen in my life, whatever the headline is that gets caught up in, it's, it's, it's time for you to ask a question. You know, if, if I'm part of that majority, it's time to pause and reflect. And I think this is a Mark Twain quote. Whenever it becomes part of a majority, it's time to pause and reflect and actually do your homework. All right. So yes, all those are major objections. 
cool. Do your homework. <laughs> go to uh, DACFP and actually find out what the truth yep. is, right? This is, it's an important technology that we need to understand fully. And memes aren't going to help you. So I, I think we've been at this for over an hour, and I, I can feel that we're kind of winding up. But Rick, was there any questions that we didn't get to for you or any features in the course that you want to bring particular attention to? I think, you know, the materials are going to be absolutely um, critical for advisors who really want to kind of grab this and differentiate themselves and really kind of get up to speed. But what did we forget to ask you on this topic? Well, we didn't talk about, uh, I'll, I'll mention four acronyms. Uh, we didn't talk about NFTs, DeFi, DAOs, or CBDCs. Uh, all of them incredibly important uh, and opportunistic. Uh, and we cover all of it in the certificate program. Um, it's, you know, as we mentioned, it's an 11 module online self-study, self-paced course with a world-class faculty. There are no product sponsors participating in our faculty. Give you just one illustration. Scott Stornetta, who's the co-inventor of blockchain technology, is on our faculty. Uh, so it's a world-class faculty of folks that will explain to you very clearly what this is, how it works, how you can apply this to your uh, financial planning practice and serving your client's best interests as a fiduciary. And uh, it's a really inexpensive course. Um, you get 13 continuing ed credits. Uh, the retail price of the course is just $549, and you are doing something special there. Um, you're offering a discount um, to it. Pro people can get a 20% discount. Um, uh, one in All right. Awesome. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's even better. And uh, the discount code, by the way, uh, is Ginsler Wealth 20 um, And uh, um, we're really excited to be able to offer that for you because... Uh, Did you say Ginsler Wealth 20? Is that a play on Ginsler? the SEC uh, chair? Yeah, yeah most <laughs> um, That just came from my staff who figures this stuff out. Um, That's we, magic. You know, our goal is to get this education and content in front of folks as fast and, and effectively as possible. <laughs> and uh, to give you 13 CE credits and at the same time be able to uh, get this content to you for what? Um, 450 bucks. Um, it's a, that's it's great. Deal. That's awesome. So, uh, we'd encourage folks to go to DAC FP and enroll in the course. Um, you can blow through it and binge it in a weekend. If you want, you can take your time and do it over uh, a longer period. And it's just the beginning of the ways that we're helping advisors attract clients and assets and improve their professionalism and being able to serve clients in the new economy of the 21st century. That's brilliant. That's awesome. I, I would, I would You're doing do. a great job, Rick. Thank you for well, coming. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Enjoy talking with you. And uh, b yeah, so before we go, what I think Pierre's got a last question as yeah. well. Uh, but also, is it, what, is it uh, so it's DACFP.com. Can right. people find you on Twitter to follow you anywhere? Are you on LinkedIn? Where's your all, other social sites? Where are you, where are you jumping the magic? Yeah, we can do all the above and, you know, too many uh social media handles for me to, to recognize, remember what they all are. Um, but go to DACFP.com. You'll get all the content there. It's all free for you uh, with the exception of the certificate course. And we encourage you to enroll. All right. Awesome. One last question, uh, Rick. Um, would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future? Oh, a week in the future. And why? Snap, just like that. <laughs> just like that. Um, why 
Or, Why? Because um, the future is all show your work here. The future is all that matters. Uh, it's where we're going, where we're headed, what we're going to accomplish, uh, who we're going to help. Um, the future is all that matters. That's why I'm a futurist and not an accountant. <laughs> you know, accountants document. Apologies the to all the accountants out there. <laughs> but, you know, I love accountants, you know, but accountants document the past. Yeah. Here's how you did spend your money. I'm a financial yeah, planner true. by trade. I plan for the future going ahead. History matters. I'm a huge fan of early American history. For example, I read a lot about history. If you don't remember or know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Uh, it's important that we understand where we came from and who we are because where we came from helps understand who we are. But if we focus on our past exclusively and insist that change is bad and we want to preserve our past, we're going to fail in the future. So we have to constantly reinvent ourselves and our communities uh, to adapt to the ever-changing circumstances in which we find ourselves. Um, we've largely um, uh, duplicated uh, the pandemic experience of the uh, 1917 because most of us grew up never having heard about it. Uh, and so a lot of the mistakes that were made in the uh, hundred years ago were made again this time around. So how do we prevent making the same old mistakes over and over? Learn from the past, but apply them to the future. We're going to live in the future. So it makes sense to spend all of our effort there. Well, Nailed it. Yep. That's Nailed the best it. answer we've had, yeah. I think. Certainly uh, the most confident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you've thought about it before. So. Well, as a futurist, you've really got to pay attention to time. Uh, it's one asset we all have in equal amounts, which is irreplaceable. Uh, and uh, time is the number one asset all of us have. And it's very important we don't squander it. Love so it. I've enjoyed my time with you, gentlemen, and look forward to joining you.